The New Testament reading is Matthew 7, verses 13 through 29. Enter by the narrow gate, for the gate is wide and the way is easy that leads to destruction, and those who enter it are many. Enter by it are many, for the gate is narrow and the way is hard that leads to life, and those who find it are few. Beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravenous wolves. You will recognize them by their fruits. Are grapes gathered from thorn bushes or figs from thistles? So every healthy tree bears good fruit, but the diseased tree bears bad fruit. A healthy tree cannot bear bad fruit, nor can a diseased tree bear good fruit. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Thus you will recognize them by their fruits. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do many mighty works in your name? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. Everyone who then who hears these words of mine and does them will be like a wise man who built his house on the rock. And the rain fell and the floods came and the winds blew and beat on that house, but it did not fall because it had been founded on the rock. And everyone who hears these words of mine and does not do them will be like a foolish man who built his house on the sand. And the rain fell, and the floods came, and the winds blew and beat against that house, and it fell, and great was the fall of it. And when Jesus finished these sayings, the crowd were astonished at his teaching, for he was teaching them as one who had authority and not as the scribes. One Ancient Hope. It's good to be with you this morning, and if this is your first time here, um, we're so glad, we're so grateful that you're here, and I hope we do get a chance to, to connect with you before you leave this morning. And right now, we're working through the Gospel of, of Matthew, and, and we've come to a kind of, of mini-series within Matthew, looking specifically at the Sermon on the Mount. And today, we come to the conclusion of this great sermon of Jesus. So before we turn to this passage, before we, we turn to the way that God, that Christ Jesus finishes these words, let us turn to God in prayer. God our Father, we thank you for who you are. We thank you for your word. We thank you for what it teaches us. We thank you for what it tells us. And most of all, we thank you that in your word we find the promise of the gospel, which is fulfilled in your Son. Jesus Christ. I pray, Lord, that the words that follow would be faithful to your intentions to the passage, Lord, and that your spirit would apply them to our heads, to our hands, to our hearts. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. So in this passage, we find a startling warning. Christ says that not all who come to him and say, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but only those who do the will of the Father in heaven. And it's actually a surprise to those here who do not do the Father's will because they think this is exactly what they've done. We see this in their response. They're, they're listing all the things that they have done, even in the name of the Lord. They've prophesied they've cast out demons they've done many mighty works they've done all the things we would expect them to do if they were following if they were obeying the will of god but christ tells them 
to their surprise that they have not done the will of the Father. Christ tells them that their actions aren't actually what they think. And this is important because human actions are a complex thing. Through our reading of the Sermon on the Mount, we've, we've looked much to the work uh, of the philosopher of the ethicist, Alistair McIntyre. And McIntyre is, is helpful here too. Speaking of human actions, he tells us the following. Man is in his actions and practice essentially a storytelling animal. I can only answer the question, what am I to do, if I can answer the prior question of what story or stories do I find myself apart. Only if I know the story that I'm in do I know what to do. And it's only by understanding the story that, I, that I'm in do my actions make sense and, and do my actions actually become what they are. McIntyre gives us the, the following example. He says, imagine you're at a bus stop and a man beside you looks at you and he says, the name of the common wild duck is Histrionicus, Histrionicus, Histrionicus. And for all of us, the question that we would be faced with is asking, what just happened? What is this man doing in saying this to us? We wonder, has he confused us with, with someone who asked him for this Latin name yesterday? Is he trying to conquer his shyness by saying the first thing that comes to his mind to any stranger he meets? Is he a spy trying to find his contact by way of some strange code sentence? We don't know. And as McIntyre tells us, we can only make sense of this statement by putting it into a story, into a narrative. And this is exactly what Christ gives us in this passage. Christ presents the Christian life as a way, as a path, something moving from beginning to middle to end. And Christ gives us two images that point to the start of the story, the image of the tree root and the image of the foundation of the house. Everything grows out from the root, everything is built up from the foundation, everything flows from where the story begins. But Christ also gives us an ending. The picture of our standing before Christ at the end of this life, where we are either welcomed warmly into the kingdom of heaven, or we're cast out because we've refused to do the will of the Father. Christ gives us a narrative structure here, a beginning, a middle, and an end. And to understand what we are doing, to understand what our actions are, again, we have to understand the narrative. We have to understand the story that we're actually in. Those who were sent away from Christ were actually performing different actions than they thought that they were. They thought they were doing the Father's will, but in fact, they were doing something very different. This is scary. But what this means is that they were living a different story than the story that Christ is telling. To tell the right story, we have to start in the right place. We have to have the right beginning. Again, the right fruit bears the right fruit. The right foundation keeps fast the house in the harshest of conditions. So what here is the right beginning? Well, we have to look at the Old Testament background to the Sermon on the Mount. 
And as we've noted throughout the Gospel of Matthew, Matthew is presenting Christ at each and every turn as the fulfillment of the Old Testament. And this is not the first time that a leader of Israel has stood on a mountain before a crowd and taught them the life that God calls the human to. Matthew wants us to remember Moses doing this very same thing. Moses coming down from Mount Sinai and teaching the people the Ten Commandments. We've used this illustration before, and and, and again, I know this is a bit of ancient technology, but what does it mean to say that everything that Christ is, is teaching here is already in the Ten Commandments? Well, think of a Polaroid picture. You take the Polaroid picture, and the light develops the image. It brings it out in clarity, in in detail. The light doesn't change the image, it just brings out more fully what's already there. I hope at least some of you can remember that technology. And that's exactly what the Sermon on the Mount does with the Ten Commandments. Christ doesn't change or abolish the law, he brings out the fullness of the law, the image of God's comprehensive ethical law. But what does this have to do with the beginning? Well, we have to remember that Moses' sermon to the people on Mount Sinai, it doesn't actually begin with commandments. His first word to the people is not that you should have no other God before me, the one true God. No, God's first words to his people are the following. I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. This is the beginning. This is the place that God starts, and so this is also the place that we must start. The beginning of the life that God calls us to, the life of flourishing, is a life that begins with God rescuing us, delivering us from bondage. It doesn't begin with us making ourselves God's people, but with God making us His people. When God says, I am the Lord your God, He is saying to us, You are my people. And only then, only after that, come the commandments. And this is the opposite order that we would expect. We think that this should actually be the ending of Moses' sermon, not the beginning. What we expect is to hear this long list of God's commandments. And then the condition, if you keep these Ten Commandments, then I will rescue you. Then I will be your God. Then I will be your people. But no, this is not the ending. This is the beginning. The logic of the Ten Commandments is not act like my people so that you can become my people. Rather, it's you are my people, so act like my people. The commandments grow us into what God has already made us. And this, too, is where Christ begins. Remember, it's before the Sermon on the Mount that Christ, we see Christ calling disciples to himself. Christ, too, says, you are my people, and now let me show you how to act like what I've already made you. And so here we find two different stories, two different narratives, one story beginning with what we must do and then our response, and then the other story beginning with what God has already done in our response to him. And if different narratives, different stories produce different actions, then what we have here are relating to God by way of wholly different actions. 
Again, different stories mean different actions. Recall again those who stood before Christ and were surprised that they had not done the Father's will. They had done much in relation to God. But they've not lived the story that Christ and Moses were telling. Those cast away from Christ lived a different story. The story of do this and become my people. They actually had the story reversed. They'd switched the beginning and the ending. And so living a different story, they were performing different actions. Uh, Alistair McIntyre is again helpful. He, he gives us this example. We see a man who's tending his yard, and, and we might actually characterize his action, what he's doing, in a number of different ways. We might say he's, he's gardening, taking exercise, preparing for the winter, and or pleasing his wife. Gardening may be for him an, an exercise because he holds a true narrative that being healthy, having a good health is important. Gardening may be for him preparing for the winter because he holds a true narrative that without the right work, the garden will suffer in the winter. And, or, he could be pleasing his wife. But here we can press deeper. Because what does it mean to please his life, his wife? And this rests upon how we understand, how he understands marriage. What is his story? What's his narrative of marriage? This will determine what it means for him to please his wife. If his wife's love and affection are something he must continually earn, then he gardens to, to stay married, to keep the love of his wife. He pleases his wife so as not to lose her. However, if his wife's love and affections are something that he knows are not conditional, not dependent upon doing this or that, having this or that, enjoying this or that status, acquiring this or that amount of resources, but instead is based upon the unshakable lifelong commitment of marriage, then the man gardens not to stay married, but to grow his marriage. He doesn't garden to earn the love of his wife, but in grateful response to the love of his wife. And so, why are you prophesying, casting out demons? Why are you doing mighty works? Well, it's to please God. Okay, but, but tell me more. Is pleasing God something like the first husband? Do you please God to constantly earn his love? Or is it something like the second husband? Do you please God in response to what God has already done, his great act of love by which he's already made you his people? These are two very different stories. And so, two very different kinds of pleasing. What is the root that the fruit of the Christian life must grow from? What is the foundation that the house of the Christian life is built? I am the Lord your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. If this is not our root, we will not bear Christ's fruit. If this is not our foundation, the storms of life will destroy us. If this is not our story, we will not live lives that are pleasing to the Father. 
The reformer, theologian, and, and pastor, Martin Luther, he warns us that if we believe our service to others puts us in a right relation, in a right standing before God, then everything that we do in, in some way, shape, or form will be a form of, of self-preservation. In some way, I will be serving you in order to save myself. The God I worship is, is not so much a loving father as, as a demanding boss. And, and, and other people, they're like customers or clients who I have to please in order to get hired and in order to keep my job. I may go above and beyond in my professional duties. I may work from sunup to sundown to make sure that all of my customers are satisfied with my work. But I'm not really doing it for them. I'm doing it for the sake of my job, my career, my professional standing with my boss God, who is never really pleased with what I do. And other people, they become much more like steps or stairs that lead me to job security. They become projects to get my boss's attention. They become tools of the trade. The God I worship is, is not so much a loving father as a demanding admissions board. I filled my weekend with volunteer activities, not so much for the people I'm serving, but to make my application and my resume really stand out. Look at everything I've done. Look at all the people I've served, not to mention my flawless report card. I've done everything you could have asked for. Thank you, Lord, that I am not like all those slackers. I deserve to be one of the few that make it into that elite institution, into this elite salvation of God's people. This is one story about God. And this story begins with, do this and become my people. But this is not the story that Christ tells. And Christ warns us that this story will lead to our collapse. Christ tells us if we build on the wrong foundation, we are building on the sand. And when the rain and the floods and the winds come, that is when the trials and struggles of life hit us, Christ says we will collapse. The foundation of do this and become my people cannot support the weight of our life. Even worse, it will point us into one or two, one of two dangerous directions. Either we'll, we'll feel like we've made the cut or we'll feel like we haven't. If we believe like we're, if we believe that we're pleasing this boss God, this divine admissions board, that we've earned our spot in the elite group of God's people, we're going to be prideful. We're going to think that we're better than others. We're going to look down on others. And even more, because we believe that we've earned our spot, well then, we think God owes us. You've worked hard for this boss, and the least that he can do is make your working conditions, conditions as pleasant as he can. But when life gets hard, when we get sick, when those around us die, when we experience professional or personal rejection, when our children's when they break all of our expectations for them, when financial struggles overwhelm us, when the rains and the floods and the winds come, we will be furious with God. We've worked ourselves ragged for this God. 
We've prophesied, we've cast out demons, we've done many works even in his very name. And this is the way that God repays us. And perhaps we walk away from God. As you get older, you will see this more and more. Friends who seem wholly committed to God one day renounce their faith. And often, you will hear things like, God didn't come through for me. God didn't give me what I wanted. He never gave me a spouse, the job I was looking for, children, the deliverance from this sickness, that explanation that I so desperately needed. I did my part, but God, he didn't do his Friends, the foundation of do this and become my people is building on the sand. It can't withstand the harsh storms of life. If it's our work that makes us God's people, then we have some claim over God for how our life should go. But if it's God's work, we simply have to trust him to orchestrate each aspect of our life just as he did when he brought us to himself. Or, if you don't feel like you're making the cut, if you feel like you're displeasing this boss God, this divine admissions board, you'll be crushed. Consider again the example of of Martin Luther. When Luther started the religious life, he was crushed under the weight of his own sins, his own lack of love for God and neighbor. He was crushed by the commandments of God, and so he did everything he could to earn the acceptance of God. He spent hours each day in confession, confessing, trying to remember each little thing that he had done. He subjected himself to a rigorous regiment of self-discipline and self-denial, but no amount of this could give Luther peace. He was crushed. He realized that the foundation of do this and become my people is no foundation for life. As Luther reflected on this time of his life, I was more than once driven to the very abyss of despair so that I wished I had never been created. Love God? I hated him. Luther warns us that the root, that the foundation that the beginning of do this and become my people will actually lead us to hate the very God that we love. And so we have to ask a question, why is it that we're so tempted to relate to God in this way? Well, remember what Christ tells us. Enter by the narrow gate, for the gate is wide and the way is easy that leads us to destruction, and those who enter by it are many. For the gate is narrow, And the way is hard that leads to life. And those who find it are few. What is Christ telling us about the narrow gate? Many things, but one thing is that few find it. The other gate is easily found. It's a very wide path. It's the path of do this and become my people because that is our default view of religion. That's what we expect We'll be good, we'll be nice, and God will accept us. It begins with what we should do and not what God has already done. And if this is our default religion, it cannot help us, cannot help but lead us to hate God. 
if we take it to its logical conclusion, as did Luther. And so we shouldn't be surprised that many have come to reject the Christian faith. Do this and become my people is a wide path indeed. We expect Christianity to be a message that begins with God telling us what to do, not telling us what he has already done for us. And so we have trouble hearing this message. We pass right over it. It's not that we don't even find it. We don't even notice it. But there's more. Christ also tells us it's a narrow path. And how is it narrow? In many ways. But one is that it runs straight through the very wide ditches of pride and self-contempt, which rest on either side. Again, do this and become my people will either puff you up with pride or crush you under the heaviest weight. And the temptation of fallen humanity is always to fall into one of these ditches. But the, the narrow path is neither pride nor self-contempt, but it's the hard and hopeful work of humility. And proper humility produces the actions that Christ calls forth. Again, Christ calls us to both hear and do his word, and it's actions that Christ calls forth. It's these actions that come from humility alone. They begin with what God has already done. God has rescued us. He's made us his people, and so our actions are deeds of gratefulness in response to God's great love. They're actions that move from God's love, not for God's love. To act in pride is to assume that we must earn all things for ourselves. that life is one big competition that we must win at the expense of the other. And actually, self-contempt, it holds the same premise, but it's resigned itself to losing this vicious competition of life. But humility, it doesn't see life as a competition. Humility sees life as a gift. Again, humility is not moving out for God's love, but from God's love. And what that means is we're not threatened by others. We're free to rejoice in the skills and the talents and successes of others. We can be grateful for the way that God has gifted them. And we can also recognize our own gifts. First and foremost, because we don't expect our gifts to do what they can never do. While a baseball bat works very well for hitting and swatting baseballs, you can't use a baseball bat to swat away a giant boulder. If you try, eventually the bat is going to break. The boulder's just too big for the bat. Well, in the same way, the talents and abilities that God has given us, they are great gifts. But we can't use them to move the boulder of earning God's acceptance and approval. If we try to, we, like the baseball bat, will break. But that's okay because our gifts were never meant to do this in the first place. For the Christian, God has already given his approval and acceptance. God has already moved that big boulder. Humility, then, gives us the special privilege of really looking at our talents and abilities in a clear light. We realize that the ways that God has gifted us, they're not meant to move boulders, only baseballs. But move baseballs, we must. God, in a sense, has cleared out the boulders, so now we can and must play baseball. We're to use our gifts to serve, not to save. 
And just because others have greater skills in some area, maybe we think our talents and gifts have no merit. But friends, there's always someone better, and life isn't a competition anyways. For instance, perhaps even at this church, you're intimidated to volunteer to help with music or to help lead a Bible study because someone else is better, even way better at these things. That's okay. These things are not your salvation, but only ways to serve God for what he has already done for you. And so let this church community be a place where you can grow in your service, escaping those twin ditches of pride and self-contempt. And with that, since life is not a competition, the church should be a community that's helping people identify their talents and abilities, which is to say the many ways that God has uniquely gifted, him, gifted them to serve both God and neighbor. No one else's gifting is a threat to you because your giftings are not what brought you to God. Your salvation rests on God's work and not your own. Perhaps someone is smarter than you, handier with tools than you, a better leader than you, a better teacher than you, a better artist than you, a better whatever than you. Praise God, because you are not saved by your smartness or handiness or leading or teaching or artistry or anything else that you can do. And so there's no better place than the church community to identify and encourage people's gifts because there's no other place where gifts can rightly be seen as gifts and not threats. And so let us be a church that encourages one another like this. Does someone in the congregation have a special knack for something that has great potential to serve this church and, and even the greater Iowa City community? I encourage you to tell them and to help them foster and cultivate this. Maybe it's even someone that you've been jealous of for this very reason. But again, they are no threat. They are a gift to you and to this church community. I encourage you to, to track them down, to find them, to let them know that this morning. Encourage them in what they're doing and spur them on in their gift. And we can do this because our story does not begin with do this and become my people, do this and save yourself. No, our story begins with I have rescued you. You are my people, so use the gifts that I have given you to act like my people. But we have to ask, might we go back even further? Might this beginning have an even deeper beginning? We have a hint here in Christ's reply to those who were living the wrong story. Christ warns, Then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. Yes, Christ can call them workers of, of lawlessness because not one commandment of God have they truly kept because they have not sought to obey the will of God for the right reason. But Christ also says, I never knew you. We might expect him to say, you never knew me, but he doesn't. Christ says, I never knew you. And what does he mean? Well, again, we see the initiative of God. God's knowing of us, Christ's knowing of us. But when did Christ know us in this sense? Well, it's when Christ rescued us. 
When Christ rescued all of those Israelites long ago who had faith in the promise of God which Christ came to fulfill, when Christ rescued all of those in the church who trusted in the very same promise fulfilled in Christ, when Christ rescued us, Christ knew us. And this is our true rescue from bondage. The reason that we can become God's people is because God has known us and rescued us in Jesus Christ. And this is the very beginning of the story. The medieval theologian Thomas Aquinas, he he asks an important question about Christ's statements, one of Christ's statements on the cross. He asks, who is it that Christ is praying for upon the cross when he says, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do? And Aquinas makes the insightful point that this prayer must be heard and answered because it's a petition to the Father for the forgiveness of sin by the very one through whom our sins are forgiven. But as Aquinas points out, this means that this prayer cannot be prayed for all of those present at the crucifixion because not all of them came to place their faith in Christ. And so not all of them were rescued. Christ. So then, who is Christ praying for when he says, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do? Aquinas explains that he is praying for all those whom he knew, all those whom he predestined before the foundation of the world to be his people, to be God's people. He's praying specifically for all those who will and have placed their faith in him him throughout the whole history and future of the world. And as Christ hangs upon the cross, if you are in Christ, he prays for you. He prays for me specifically and personally. He did not just die for you in a general sense, but for you as the specific and actual person that you are. The Passover lamb was killed in the place of the oldest son of the family. Imagine all of the other sons and daughters coming to the parents and asking, was this lamb, was it killed in my place? Did it die to save me? The answer would be no. Child, this lamb was killed in the place of your older brother. The Passover was certainly meaningful for them, but how much more so for that oldest brother, the one whose very life was saved? There would be a special joy and reverence in that son's celebration of the Passover. However, when each of us, all sons and daughters, come to our Heavenly Father and we ask, did this lamb, Jesus Christ, Did he die specifically in my place for me, for the particular person that I am? Our Heavenly Father smiles and says, yes. If you are in Christ, then Christ knew you upon the cross. Christ knew you specifically. He died for you specifically In fact, there was never a time when he did not know us. So whenever you think of Christ on the cross, think on Christ thinking of you, suffering for you, saving you specifically. 
And like those who did not do the will of the Father, there was a time when we did not know what we were doing. Christ tells us as much in his prayer upon the cross, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. And we have been forgiven. Christ has changed our story, and he's brought us to our senses so that now we can produce the fruits and the actions of faith. And so unlike all of those who refuse the will of the Father, when all of us one day stand before Christ, we need not point to all the things that we've done to try to save ourselves, but we need only point to Christ, to the gracious judge himself who lived and died in our place and made us what we are. It's because Christ has prophesied and cast out demons and done many mighty works that we can enter the kingdom of heaven. And may he give us the grace to do the same in gratitude to him. Let us pray. God, our Father, we thank you for who you are. We thank you, Lord, that our story is, I have made you my people, and so act like what I have already made you. Thank you, Lord, that this is only possible because of the work of Christ. Help us to cling to him ever more fully, ever more deeply. It's in his name that we pray. Amen.